So I wonder, how's your vision this morning? How's your vision? How well do you see? Now, if you're like me, you'll spend half this morning with your glasses fogged up because of your mask. It's just part of the reality of the world we live in today. But that aside, right, we value, we value good eyesight because we're taught to trust our senses. We say that seeing is believing. So when we observe an image or an event, we, we form a distinct impression and an interpretation of that image or of that event. You know, in the late 19th century, psychologists began to play with images and events because they began to recognize that different individuals could observe the exact same thing but come to wildly different interpretations. And they started to create a whole genre of images called ambiguous images. And the classic example is Rubin's vase after Danish psychologist Edgar Rubin. And I think we might have, look, there it is. Okay, first time I've ever used a prop in a sermon. We're gonna have movie clips next week. All right, here it goes, no. Okay, but here's the question. Is it a vase? Or two opposing faces? So that's the question. Same image, but depending upon what you observe as the primary object and what you see as the background, right, that'll, that'll impact your own interpretation. So if you're drawn to the center there in black, you're likely going to see a vase. If black is sort of at the center and the white is the background, you'll see a vase. But if instead the black is sort of the shadowy background and the objects are white, well, what do you see? You see two opposing faces. It's either Ruben's vase or Ruben's faces. It all depends on your perspective. It all depends on what your mind is telling you is the primary object to focus upon. Not to bring up a sore subject. You can drop the vase now. Not to bring up a sore subject. It's kind of like the Razorback football game last night. Did Bo Nix spike the ball? Or did he pass it backwards? And hence, was it a fumble? And did we recover it? And would that have ended the game? Same event. Many of us saw it. Wildly different interpretations and drastically different outcomes. Well, friends, the same thing happened when it came to Jesus. People could witness the same man, observe the same teachings, the same miracles, and nonetheless, they could come to drastically different understandings of who he is. Even the disciples themselves were struggling to understand Jesus. And in our study that we've been in through Mark's gospel, we've seen Peter confess Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of God's people. He's gotten that confession right, and what he sees when he looks at Jesus In that confession, he sees a conquering Christ. That's what he sees. One who is going to put his heel upon the head of Roman aggression, restore Israel back to her formal glory and all the rest. But what he can't see when he looks at Jesus will be the crucified Christ. That's the image when he looks at Jesus that he can't see. He doesn't want to see it. Which is why for the past two weeks, and it's not just Peter, it's all the disciples, Jesus, he's had to boldly and plainly teach that the Messiah must first suffer and die. And last week we saw that not only does he, Jesus predict his own death, 
But he actually calls his disciples to join him in that death. For bearing a cross is not just Jesus' own destiny, but actually bearing a cross is the destiny of all of those who would follow him. And at that, right, the disciples are all, well, they're all in this sort of tailspin of bewilderment. This is not what they were expecting. They thought they were boarding a plane with first-class tickets, and they thought they were going somewhere exciting with Jesus. And now it looks like Jesus has them in a nosedive for the nearest mountain. Yet in that moment, right, last week, his disciples would be given a word of encouragement. Those last verses in chapter 9, well, verse 1, the last verses from last week. He said, Jesus did, that some of them there, some of those 12, would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And that's where we pick up our story this morning, chapter 9 of, of Mark, verse 2. So I don't invite you to turn there if you're not over there, Mark, chapter 9, verse 2. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, maybe you're visiting here. If you grab one of those worship guides, we do print uh, the sermon text in the back of those guides. It's got the verse references right in there. So if you're new to a Bible or new to text, bold number is the chapter number. The little superscript numbers are the verse numbers. All right, so with that, chapter 9, verse 2, we pick up the story. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice out of the cloud came. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, so here we've come to one of the most famous moments in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus has led the inner three up a mountain, and there, we know from Luke's gospel, there in the dead of night, Jesus is going to pull back the curtain, so to speak. And they're going to receive a true glimpse of his heavenly glory. And I think the main point of our passage, you can summarize it like this, is that we can suffer because we serve a glorified Savior. I think if we take this text in the midst of its context, what it's teaching us is that as followers of Jesus, we can suffer because we serve a glorified Savior. 
Now to look at it a little more closely in verses 2 to 8, we've got the grand revelation, right? This transfiguration of Jesus followed by an implication there. And so I think if we want to summarize the, the first section, chapter 9, verse 2 through verse 8, it's, we can summarize it like this. Listen to the heavenly son. Listen to the heavenly son. And then in the second half, verses 9 through verse 13, we've got the disciples' reaction to this event, and then you've got Jesus' response to them. And then you can sum up the second half like this. Suffer with the humiliated son. Suffer with the humiliated son. So they're going to be called to listen to the heavenly son, and that is, in fact, what's going to enable them to suffer with the humiliated son. That's just going to serve as our basic two points and this, uh, the breakdown of the text. So first, point one, listen to the heavenly son. Right? Listen to the heavenly son. Now as we know, the scene opens with Jesus grabbing Peter and James and John, and he's going to take them on a little hike. Now we've seen Jesus grab these three before. It seems of all those who followed Jesus, he particularly grabbed the 12 disciples and, and especially poured into them. But even amongst the 12, he actually singled out three in particular, and he gave them special attention, and no doubt such preferential treatment likely spurred a lot of jealousy amongst the other disciples. We're going to see that later in the book of Mark, but nonetheless, Jesus wasn't dissuaded. Jesus saw something in them, and he intended to do something particular with these three. And so he didn't let the whispers of criticism or of others, he didn't let that dissuade him. He invested uniquely in these three. But we notice this is no ordinary hike Jesus is going to take them on. It's likely Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon had an elevation of 9,100 feet, right? This was not like Pettigene or whatever mountains we've got around here. We're talking big mountain. This is like a mountaineering expedition, no casual afternoon stroll. And so they go out, and we know, again, from Luke's gospel, it's night, so you just got to picture the scene. you got cool, crisp summer air. So there's no modern days kind of light pollution out there at Mount Hermon. So the, the stars, the canopy of the skies above the stars would have popped. Right, Constellations would have been spinning before their sleepy eyes. But Jesus didn't drag them up to the top of this mountain to give them an astronomy lesson. For in that moment, there was one celestial wonder that began to shine brighter than all the rest. And that was Jesus, transfigured before their very eyes, radiant in clothes that became piercingly white. Right, His birth, we know, was celebrated by the star at Bethlehem. And now it's as if all the stars dance before the sight of their maker at the top of Mount Hermon. But it's not just Jesus. We read that as well, Elijah and Moses also show up and together they're speaking. And we know from Luke's account that they were speaking of Jesus' departure. That word literally means exodus. Right? Would there be a new Passover lamb? Would there be a new exodus for a new people of God? I mean, can you imagine the nature of that conversation? What those three were beholding as Jesus, dazzlingly white, the Son of God, spoke with Moses and Elijah. You know, Moses had been dead for 1,400 years, Elijah for over 900. If there was ever a time, 
ever a time to, to soak in the moment, right? ever a time to ponder its implications, this was that time. But enter Peter. Enter Peter, a man who always had something to say when there was nothing to say. A man who was always and ever able to ruin a moment by running his mouth. Guys, how about I set up a campsite? Or I'll make you three tents. Friends, isn't Peter always an encouragement? You know, if you stop and read this slowly, and as we're going to get into it, I think he's a great encouragement that God would do so much with an individual who constantly shoved a boot down his throat. Like he lived like that. His foot in his mouth. That's how Peter lived. And yet God did wonderful things through Peter. And I hope you find that an encouragement because I know I do. Friend, it's also, I think, it passages and moments just like this where Peter has right here where we can be assured of the historicity of the Bible. You know, if you're going to make up a religion... You are not going to paint its leaders like this. You'd never write it like this, unless it actually happened like this, which is what we trust happened. So nonetheless, here we are. Peter, we learn that this inopportune outbreak of his, this outburst, is actually due to the fact that Peter is utterly terrified. You know, it's interesting when, when humans, when we when we as, as fallen humanity come into the presence of a holy God, it's not ecstasy, it's not giggles and delight when we do that. It is instead sheer awe and paralyzing terror, which is what we're seeing with Jesus right here. It's just that he happens to run his mouth in such moments. And yet it's in that moment that we read, then a cloud appears out of nowhere, and this cloud descends upon them. And out of that cloud comes a voice like one they have never heard before. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then just like that, it's over. And Jesus is left, the last man standing. Well, that's what happened. But I think the, maybe even the better question is, what does that all mean? Right, what does that all mean? For those with eyes to see, I think this text is telling us something about Jesus' identity and about our own responsibility. So if you're a careful note taker, these are the two subpoints to the first point. We're going to learn some things about Jesus' identity and then secondly about our responsibility. So first, when it comes to thinking about Jesus' identity, make no mistake, we are meant to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. That is God's own testimony about Jesus. The voice from the cloud, right? This is my beloved Son. We've heard language very similar to this all the way back in Mark 1 at Jesus' own baptism. God would say, you are my beloved Son. But here, with the concern for the disciples that they understand, God says, no, 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 this to the three, this is my beloved Son. That's what they had to understand. Fully man. And fully God, this one in dazzlingly white. You know, such language is rarely used in Scripture, this, this idea of, of God having a beloved son, where it's really not used anywhere else, and I'm aware of in Scripture, except of Jesus. Because Jesus is uniquely God's son. Because he's the divine son. 
He's not just Jesus, a slightly better version of us. Jesus isn't just sort of a tuned up version of us, a newer model. He is wholly unique and he is wholly separate. Fully man, but also as we confessed earlier in our corporate confession of faith, he is fully man, but yet he is also fully God. Fully man, but also fully God. You know, and in scripture, brilliant garments that shine in dazzlingly wide array as as Jesus has, those are often a sign of heavenly beings. And in Psalm 104, verse 2, we read that it is God alone who wraps himself in light, who wears clothing as white as snow, Daniel 7, 9. And so here we're being told that is actually true of Jesus. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, Moses' own face, it shone, right? It It was shining bright because it was reflecting the glory of the Lord. But Jesus doesn't just reflect the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we don't want to think of the transfiguration that Jesus suddenly became something that he wasn't already. That his nature changed. We don't want to think that Jesus has always been fully God. Now they're just seeing him as he really is. If you remember the famous line of the old Christian hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, But don't think even from that line that that Jesus' humanity is somehow disguising his deity. Jesus' humanity didn't disguise his deity. Jesus never disguised God. Jesus never kind of hid God from us. Jesus wasn't finally hidden in the flesh. No, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He says even, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. Or as Ryan quoted early in the service, Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is what? The sun is the radiance. It's what we see right here. The radiance of God's glory. The exact expression of his nature. This is the very problem with notice how Peter addresses Jesus. He calls him rabbi. And it's true, of course, Jesus is rabbi. He is is a teacher, But he's so much more than a teacher. Kind of makes you wonder, after Jesus has talked all about this crucifixion, well, he's talked about bearing crosses and his death. Kind of makes you wonder if if Peter's backing off his confession. Well, maybe after all this, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. You know, he's going to go back, he's going to call him rabbi. We don't know for certain. But clearly, when Peter refers to Jesus merely as rabbi, God himself, swelling with pride, For his own son takes umbrage at Peter's own slight of his son. And he rouses himself and so comes down in the cloud. And he says, no, you nimwit. He's not just a teacher. This is my son, God says. My son. You know, it's very rare in the scriptures when God speaks audibly. Just a few times. Friend, when he does take notice. Take notice here. It's why Peter's suggestion that he makes three tenths is so absurd. As if the three men are equal, that's perhaps the first problem that Peter makes. 
Notice only Jesus is transfigured. Only Jesus is that last man standing on the mountain. Again, this whole, this whole scene cries out to the utter uniqueness of Jesus. But it's also that word for tent is literally tabernacle. It was used of God when he tabernacled with his people in the Exodus there in the wilderness. And so what we have here is you, have, you really have God crying out to Peter, you want to build a tabernacle. But what you don't understand is I have already provided my tabernacle and it's right before you. It's Jesus. It's in that Jesus, my son, in whom I am tabernacling with you. I am with you. You don't need tents. You've got him. The dwelling of God is with man. Revelation 21, 3. Right, the dwelling place there. Literally, Revelation 21, 3. The dwelling place, the tabernacling of God is with man. Or again, just back to John 1, 14. The word became flesh, what do we read? And dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. That's the problem with these tents. Peter's missing the one in whom God has tabernacled and indwelt. So if you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian, the Bible is exceptionally clear. Jesus is uniquely God's divine son. He's not just a religious teacher. He's not just a sort of savvy leader, even if you will. He is God enfleshed. And as God, Jesus demands your exclusive allegiance. And because he's God, recognize he has every right to make that demand of you. You are not, in fact, your own sovereign. Now, I know as Americans, right, we love democracy. We think everything should be a democracy because we like to have our say because at the end of the day, we really just want to rule ourselves. But recognize the universe is no democracy. The universe is a monarchy. Jesus does not rule by referendum, does not rule by popular opinion. He rules by divine right. And God himself has appointed his beloved son and appointed this son as the preeminent king. In the future, every knee will bow before this Jesus. That's part of what's being pictured here at the transfiguration. And those knees will bow either willingly or unwillingly. Those who refuse to do so will have them broken by a rod of iron. That's what we see in Revelation. Friend, that's the Jesus of the Bible. And the glorious news, if you have come here and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that the same one, the same one who will one day prosecute God's judgment against you, is the same one who stands before you ready to freely pardon you. He calls out to you and says, listen, if you understand yourself to be a sinner, if you understand in any way you have sinned against God. You have done what you ought not to do. You have followed your own ways and your own paths and often made a mess of things and hurt others and most significantly, really not just offended others, but you've offended me by the way you've lived. If you see that in yourself and you recognize the consequence of that sin, Jesus is saying, listen, that life you didn't live, I lived. The death you deserve to die, I died on the cross for you. And then I rose from the grave as proof 
that I had settled that debt of your sins against a holy God. And so all you must do is turn from your sins and trust in me. In nothing else, Jesus says, but in me. Repent and believe, and you can be forgiven. You can be pardoned. Your sins can be washed white as snow. And that's the hope of the gospel that we as Christians hold out. If you've come and you have not repented of your sin, I plead with you to do that. Jesus is a glorious figure. But Jesus himself one day will be a terrifying figure when he comes back in judgment. And that's not to scare you. That is to make you aware. That's who Jesus is. And he stands even now ready to freely pardon if you turned him in faith. Friend, he's not just the son of God, though. Part of what we see also about Jesus and his identity is that he is, in fact, the true and final revelation of God. So that great revelatory moment of the Old Testament is what Tafta read earlier. There in Exodus 24 on Mount Sinai when, when Moses ascends the mountain and he receives on those tablets of stone the law and the commandments. We read again, we read from it earlier. I wonder if you caught all the parallels between that passage and between this one in Mark 9. So we read, for example, in Mark 9, verse 2, that it was after six days that Jesus took the three up the mountain. Now we skip right over that detail, but in Mark's gospel, he almost never makes notion of time. When he does, it's worth stopping to note why. And I don't think that's an accident. I think what Mark is doing is connecting this transfiguration event to the six days that Moses was there on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. The fact that it was a high mountain as well. Mountains in the Bible are often places of divine revelation. So Mark is again connecting the high mountain right of Mount Sinai with this mountain here in that revelatory event. As well the fact that we read that God's glory descended and that there was a cloud that overshadowed the people. Right, All those are parallels connecting these two events in scripture. Because part of what Mark wants us to see to the astute observer is that Jesus himself He is like a new and a better Sinai, offering a new and a better covenant for a new and a better people of God, not because they're morally superior, but because they're going to possess his spirit. And that's how Jesus is going to lead them. God is saying that all the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. I think that's also what's pictured by the two men, Moses and Elijah. So why these two men? Why these two guys? Well, I think it's in part because Moses was understood to be, to the Jews, he represented the law. And in many ways, Elijah represented the prophets. So the two main divisions of the Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets, you have their figureheads right here with Jesus. And yet at the end of the scene, what happens? God's not saying, look to those guys or go back to that law. He's saying, look to Jesus. Look to him who has fulfilled, as we know in Matthew 5, the law and the prophets. Jesus alone has fulfilled everything the law ever pointed to. The sacrificial system, what it demanded. Every messianic prophecy found their yes and amen in this Jesus. But even more, Elijah and Moses, right? They both had theophanies, experienced God on mountains. Both were faithful servants of the Lord. Both suffered because of their obedience. Both, in fact, were rejected at times by the people of God. And yet both were vindicated by God All of those parallels are not to be missed because all of them will also be true of Jesus. So the transfiguration is not just a confirmation of Jesus' own identity, but it is also the assurance 
of his final victory. So again, not just a confirmation of his identity, but an assurance of his final victory. And that's what the disciples are going to need. This scene is going to have to be in their minds as they march toward Calvary. Because remember, that's where they're headed. This whole section is that march toward Calvary at Jerusalem. So you've got Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the true and final revelation of God who fulfills all the hopes for the people of God. That's what's being pictured here in this scene the transfiguration. So what are the disciples to do with that? That's the, that's the question. That's what they got to know about Jesus' identity. But again, what's their responsibility if they've understood this transfiguration? Well, God doesn't leave them wondering, right? He tells them. He tells them what their responsibility is. But notice first, what does God not say? He doesn't say, therefore, given who this is, Jesus is, now go give money to him or go perform good works in his name or go impress him, or talk about him, or even share him with others, our first responsibility when it comes to understanding Jesus is to listen to him. It's to listen to him. Friends, that is the only imperative in our passage. Now later, Jesus is going to charge them to not speak of what's happened, but in terms of a verbal form, it's the only imperative. God is commanding disciples of Jesus to listen to Jesus. Now, in context, what he's probably trying to do is refer back to what Jesus had taught them. Right back in chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, about his upcoming death. So I think part of what they have to hear is the very thing they don't want to hear, what they have just been taught back at the end of chapter 8. And not only his death, but his invitation that all those who would follow him must take their crosses and they too must come and die with him. It's the, the paradoxes there that Peter is so struggling to accept, right? That the road to glory has to first lead through the valley of suffering. That's what Peter doesn't want to accept. You know, the words of the old Puritan prayer, if you know from Valley of Vision, right, that opening prayer, that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear a cross is to wear the crown. That the valley is the place of vision. Friend, that's the valley they don't want to descend. And that's the valley Jesus is going to take them into, which is why he is going to first take them up this mountain so that when they must descend into that valley, they will know that the crucified Christ is still yet this conquering Christ. And they have to fix their eyes upon this Christ and no other. And they do that by listening to his voice. Friend, I think more broadly, though, that just refers to all of Jesus' own teaching. I mean, the disciples will say to him, where else should we go? For you alone, Jesus, have the words of life. John six sixty eight, which is why, Christian, if you are here this morning, you hold yourself out to be a follower of this transfigured Jesus. You cannot say you love Jesus and never open up the words of Jesus. 
You cannot claim to love Jesus and never open up the words of Jesus. You may say, you know what, but I come to church regularly and I serve diligently and I give faithfully and I talk appropriately, right? I do all of those things and you very well may do all of those things, but God is saying the one who truly loves Jesus lives by the words of Jesus. The mark of a genuine Christian is their reverence for God's word and how they respond to the hearing of that word. That is the mark of a genuine Christian. When God's word critiques us, when it says things that are hard for us, when God's word confronts culture around us, will we listen to it? Right, will we listen to it? Will we, in fact, organize our lives around this word? Or will we close this word and push it aside and move on from it? That's the question we, we have before us every single day that we live. So if you are a young adult in this room, right, if, or if you're perhaps a young adult listening uh, this morning, this is the decision you've got to make because there's going to come a day when you are going to step out from under your parents' authority. Maybe that's the day you head off to college. Maybe that's the day you move out of the house. Maybe some of you are already in that time. Maybe some of you are soon headed for that time. When that time comes, you're not going to be able to look at your friends, your classmates, and your teammates and say, well, you know what? Mommy and Daddy always said, you won't be able to do it. As much as may, you may respect the words of your parents, the weight of the world, and the pressure that the world will bring to bear upon your soul, that is just too great, and you will cave, and it happens all the time. Unless you're committed to this word first. Jesus is saying to you, tune out the world, put down your phone, right? whatever you've got to do, Earbuds out, what have you. Stop running after the prospect of pleasure and all of that which cannot satisfy. And you have to tune your heart and your mind and your soul into this word. Listening to Jesus. Listen to me is what he says to you this morning. The question is, will you? Will you listen to him? Will you build the foundation of your life upon his words? But it's not just to young adults, though. I mean, that, that is God's command to all of us. It's equally important to all of us. Sometimes our temptation, of course, though, is sadly to neglect this word in favor of those who maybe spoon-feed the word to us. You know, teachers of God's word. But friends, I do not possess the words of life. John Piper, Matt Chandler, Certainly not people like Joyce Meyer, even John MacArthur. They themselves don't possess the words of life. They exist and they teach, Lord willing, to point you to the one who has the words of life. And that's the one you've got to listen to. That's the one to build your life around. Remember how the scene ends. Everyone else is gone except Jesus alone. Last man standing. The Christian faith. It doesn't finally rest upon saints of old. It doesn't rest upon the heroes of the present. It rests on this Jesus. That's who we're meant to see and build our lives upon. I think one of the problems 
when we place our faith and our trust, as many of us begin to slowly, subconsciously, maybe implicitly do, is we place it in teachers and great personalities. But friends, preachers make terrible saviors. If you haven't figured it out, I'm not a savior. If you have any questions, you can ask my wife after service, right? She can speak to that very clearly. At the end of the day, every preacher will fail you. Every teacher of God will fail you. Save one, and it's this Jesus. You must listen to him. Not only does this Jesus have the words of life, but notice this Jesus is the one who's going to promise to walk with you through the valleys of life. Because there is Jesus, and he is going to go down the mountain with them, and he's going to walk with them to Jerusalem. And even when he goes, he's going to send his spirit even better than his presence beside them, his own spirit within them, to walk with them through those valleys. He is there. When everyone else is gone, this Jesus is still standing there right beside you. Do you trust this Jesus, even this morning, to walk with you through your valleys? You know, perhaps Peter thought, This transcendent moment meant that he would get to bypass the way of the cross. Maybe Peter thought at this point that he would get sort of the shortcut to glory. None of the stuff Jesus had been talking about back in chapter 8. But friend, this glorious moment, this transfiguration, was not an escape from the cross, but it was preparation for it. It was their preparation for it. They needed to listen to the heavenly son so they would be prepared to suffer with the humiliated son. That brings us to the second half of the text, second point, suffer with the humiliated son. All right, so they're coming down the mountain. Jesus now strictly charges them not to tell anyone about what they've seen or heard, which would be a tall order. It's not the first time he said it, but what's interesting here is it's the last time he'll say it, and it's the only time he'll give a condition. And the condition is this, don't speak about it, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, why can't they speak about it now, you might wonder. Well, I think it's because Jesus knows these three, they still have yet to fully grasp who he is. They have yet to get their arms around Jesus. They're still looking at the picture, and all they see is the conquering Jesus. Remember, they don't want to see the crucified Jesus. They don't want that picture In the Greco-Roman world, gods did not become men. It didn't work that way. They certainly didn't die as men. No, the the whole agenda was for men to become gods and to become immortal. So Jesus is turning everything upside down when it comes to their own understanding. Which is why they can share it later, because it's only later that they're going to grasp the meaning. There's no way to understand Jesus until you understand both his death and his resurrection. Humiliation and exaltation. You cannot understand Jesus unless you have both pictures in your mind. Think again of Reuben's vase, where we started. Both images are actually essential when it comes to Jesus for understanding the true one. It's not one or the other. Both are there. Both have to be seen. And without both, it is not a true portrait of Jesus. Now again, maybe you've come and maybe this morning you're a skeptic of Christianity. You know, if all you have in mind is a crucified Jesus, 
you're probably going to pity him. You're going to think, you know, poor chap. Like, oh man, I don't want to follow that guy. Like, look what happens to everyone who follows Jesus. That doesn't work out so well. So maybe you'll respect him, but bow the knee to him? If all you've got is a suffering Christ, probably not. Probably not going to do it. And yet, if you're a Christian, like our temptation sometimes is to focus all on the conquering Christ, right? That's the guy that we love. That's the guy we serve. In which place, if that's all we have in mind, we will have no place for bearing crosses, no place for enduring trials for Jesus. It will only be on the backside of his death and resurrection that the disciples are going to able to see rightly. That, the crucified Jesus, is also the conquering Jesus. Both are the same. They are one. And again, both are essential to understanding who he is. You can't have one without the other. And so in verse 10, what do we know? Well, they start questioning what all this means. And that word questioning, it's often used in Mark, almost exclusively in Mark, of the Pharisees and all the religious leaders who rejected Jesus and were always trying to trip him up. It has a pejorative sense, this questioning. So notice the irony. God has just said from a cloud to them, listen to him. And it doesn't take the disciples but a few minutes to what? Start debating about him. They start debating. Now the logic of verses 11 and 13, they can be easily, I think, lost on us. But the basic flow is this. The very end of our English Old Testaments, the book of Malachi, last chapter, last verses, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, promise that one day God will send Elijah. And Elijah will turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Right? That was the promise at the very end of the Old Testament. So the disciples are thinking, okay, if Elijah comes first, well then shouldn't we be looking for Elijah? Shouldn't we be looking for him? That's what the disciples posed to Jesus as they head down the mountain. And it seems like a perfectly innocent question, but I actually think it's a bit of a leading question. For if Elijah is going to come and restore all things, then Jesus, you know what that means? You don't have to keep talking about your suffering and your death all this talk about crosses, it's unnecessary. We're looking for Elijah to come. See, all that's unnecessary. We're looking for Elijah for that great and awesome day. Turn the hearts back. That's what they should be focusing upon. That's what the disciples, I think, are suggesting implicitly by their question. And notice the obtuseness of the disciples just continues. They even seem to have the audacity, I think, to say something like, you know, Jesus, listen, haven't you read your Bible? Don't you know what we should be looking for? Shouldn't we be looking for this, Jesus? Not some scandalous day of the cross, but the glorious Elijah. Shouldn't that be where we'll be looking and focusing our hopes? You know, it makes you wonder if, if they had been walking down and stopped for a water drink. It makes you wonder if Jesus was taking a swig and at that moment just coughed it all up and spit it out. Like, seriously, guys, it's just where we are. You know, it's remarkable, I think, not only the question for some of its audacity, but its short-sightedness. Notice the disciples, they're always nearsighted, always nearsighted, frankly, a lot like you and me. They have 20-20 vision when it comes to that thing staring them straight in their face. But ask them to pick up their chins, to look out into the horizon, look beyond the present pain and suffering, and they just squint Right? They fail to take in the big picture. They miss the forest for the trees. Recognize what Jesus has just promised them. 
verse 9, he says, the Son of Man is going to rise from the dead. An amazing promise. The second time he said it in just a chapter. And this is coming immediately after God has appeared to them in a cloud in all of his Shekinah glory. He's come down. He has audibly spoke to them, again, which puts them in a very small company of men. And they not only have the confirmation of Jesus' own identity, they have the certain victory and his resurrection glory. They have all of that. And in the midst of all of those glorious promises that God has just given them, they're still frustrated and fixated on that which is right in front of them. That's all they can see. It's all they can see. You know, it might be like, maybe, if this is not too light, but it might be like me saying, hey, you know what? Next week, the Razorbacks are going to lose. But then, they're going to sweep every game. Texas A&M, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, they're going to win every one. And then they're going to get the national championship and they're going to crush Clemson and win it all. (laughs) I'm gathering some of you are laughing for various reasons. It's as if Jesus has just said that and the disciples are like, but you mean we lose the next game? Like how badly do we lose? Jesus saying, guys, I just said we win it all. Like everything, we win. And they can't see it. They can't focus upon it. They're still stuck with the trial right in front of them. Which is why Jesus has to correct their own misunderstandings. And he's going to have to say, hey, guys, Elijah's come. He's already come in the person of John the Baptist. And in the same way, that they did to him whatever they pleased, so they will do to me. So they will do to me. You see, they already had their, their traditions, their preconceived notions about Jesus, and those notions had blinded them. They weren't prepared to see that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was actually turning the hearts of the people back to God through repentance, spiritually, not politically, but spiritually restoring all things. That's what they couldn't see. That's what they perhaps even were unwilling to see. My Christian friends, we've, we've got to remember that the God of this world, Satan himself, he seeks to blind our minds, 2 Corinthians 4. He wants to keep us, 4-4, from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what Satan is about. Every day, he wants to blind you to those spiritual realities. He does not want you to see them. He's the great liar. He's the deceiver. He's the one John was talking about in that wonderful ABF this morning. That's his agenda, to blind and to deceive. Which is why every morning when we wake and we don't put on the spectacles of God's word, we won't be able to make sense of our world. We won't be able to see it rightly. We won't make sense of it. It will all be distorted. Our pain and our suffering and our trials, we're not going to see how those present and temporary struggles are preparing for us an eternal and incomparable weight of glory for that which awaits. We won't be able to see it. Only through the spectacles of Scripture, witnessed in the person of this Jesus, can we truly behold all that awaits us, see what's before us, and also see what lies on the horizon.
And to that we march. And to that we go. The great paradox is that the one who truly listens to Jesus in this life is the one who will behold him in the next. Friends, will that be you? Will that be you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that you would help us to take the blinders off. All the things we do, the lies we believe, our inattention to your word, our reluctance even sometimes to gather with your people, all the things that can blind us to the world about us, God, we pray that you would remove those blinders in your graciousness toward us. We would see the glory of Christ. We would see what awaits all those who fix their eyes on him by listening to him. Help us do that even this week to make decisions each day to listen to Jesus so that one day we might behold him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.